The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Taking Fuel from the IBD Fire, Applying New Evidence on Sphingosine 1 Phosphate Receptor Modulation as an Effective Oral Option for Management of Ulcerative Colitis. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FNG860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. Uh, this is the Taking Fuel from the IBD Fire, Applying New Evidence on the Sphingosine 1-Phosphate Receptor Modulator as an Effective Oral Option for the Management of Ulcerative Colitis. I'm Miguel Ruggiero from, from Cleveland Clinic, uh, and Nidav Svali from the University of Cincinnati. Uh, it's our pleasure to be here. So our goals are tonight are to explore how the therapeutic effects of S1P receptor modulators address the underlying pathophysiology of IBD, to also discuss the patients with IBD who could benefit from an S1 receptor modulator. And again, Anita and I have some cases that I think will illustrate that, but then also share strategies for individualizing the treatment using S1P receptor modulators for appropriate patients with IBD in accordance with the current uh, evidence and guidelines. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm gonna present, I have a brief presentation. I'll turn it to Anita for the second part, then back to me before we get to some cases. So obviously at this conference and others, I think you've seen slides on this before in terms of the incidence and prevalence of IBD in the US, which is going up. The age distribution, uh, nomenclature, we have two types of IBD, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's with indeterminate in the middle. We won't get into it tonight, but there are probably about 30 types of IBD. Uh, and these are obviously chronic inflammatory conditions. Uh, for now, we really split IBD into ulcerative colitis, which is on the left, Crohn's on the right. I think you're probably all familiar with the differences. I'm not gonna go through this too much. And tonight, we're really gonna focus on ulcerative colitis, which is that mucosal inflammatory process in the colon. The extent of disease can vary in ulcerative colitis. And you can see on the bottom left, um, it's about a third for each, maybe a little bit more present initially with ulcerative proctitis and about a third and a third with left-sided or pancolitis at, at uh, presentation. Complications I think you're familiar with, C. diff is actually something we see at higher rates, even off antibiotics in our ulcerative colitis patients. Um, but certainly over time, dysplasia, cancer, and still about 20 to 25% of our patients will require a colectomy. I'm not gonna read everything on this slide, but if you think about the pre-biologic or pre-advanced uh, therapy era, this is a nice table that, that really outlines kind of all of the therapies that we use. So the left side, oral and topical mesalamine, and then um, I still use sulfasalazine. Um, steroids in the middle, either oral or rectally administered. Uh, just to say uh, out loud, there's not really good data to show that over 60 milligrams of prednisone a day makes a difference. So uh, something to keep in mind when we're actually dosing these. And then the immunomodulators. So azathioprine 6MP, if you attended the IBD sessions at DDW this year, uh, you, we talk about these probably more in combination with TNF inhibitors. So what are the FDA-approved advanced therapies today? Now, I realize in the next three to six months, we're probably going to have a couple of new therapies on this table. 
But as we sit here today, these are the FDA-approved targeted therapies for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. You can see on the far left-hand side, there are five different mechanism of action targets for advanced therapies, uh, with really right now S1P1 at the bottom only being a Zonamod, but uh, more to come over time. I realize, too, that we have an international audience, so this table may not entirely apply for your uh, jurisdiction of where you live, but this is at least in the United States. So we've really come a long way. And I, again, you've heard this multiple times at the conference, uh, now talking not only anti-TNFs, which are in the middle, but the Integrins, IL-1223. And now we're talking about the oral small molecules or the non-monoclonal antibody molecules, JAK1 inhibitors. We have tofacitinib, bupatacitinib, and as I said before, the S1P receptor modulator. Uh, the only one available today is azonamod. So some of the benefits of small molecules, well, one is, I think, obvious. Some patients prefer taking a pill every day rather than IV or subcutaneous injection. It is a short half-life, so it does turn on and off quickly. You could also say that may not be a benefit, but it does turn off and on quickly, rapid clearance. And there's no immunogenicity, so there's no antibodies. Uh, that form to the small molecules. And there are currently no drug levels. Sometimes we get asked that question at these talks. There are no drug levels that we have. Very busy slides, but there's been a consensus group that look at some unmet needs. And I'll just kind of read the highlights. So we know that ulcerative colitis impacts quality of life. Uh, patients want to live a normal life. As far as unmet needs for treatment, timely, effective intervention to overall not only improve quickly, but avoid complications over time. And we know that there are existing therapeutic options that have drawbacks. So I think the most prevalent is corticosteroids. And obviously, probably most of you have used some form of corticosteroid, saw the benefit, but also saw the potential side effects. And then with some of the other agents, uh, some of the biologic agents, we know there are some drawbacks as well. So we need to advance and look at other therapies over time. Uh, from a dysregulated intestinal mucosal immune system, I think this was one of the questions uh, that popped up or some variation. But you can see the normal bowel on the left-hand side, IBD on the right in the picture. And we talk about this kind of leaky mucosa or leaky gut. I know that's taken on a new meaning, but we do think that there's actually translocation of antigens and there's a, a strong immune response. So there is a disrupted effector regulatory T cell, Th17, Th1 versus Tregs. Uh, but we also see increased lymphocytes and other immune cells that migrate uh, to the mucosa and lead to inflammation. All right, so now I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to Dr. S. Folly, who's gonna talk a little bit about the S1P receptor modulation and reducing inflammation. So Anita, take Wonderful. it away. Thank you, Miguel. And again, welcome all. So this, what we're specifically going to do is give a high-level view of the data, the trials. We're just going to just do a deep dive into where and where, as far as information and content from the clinical trials that comes from results of efficacy, of safety. And then really, Miguel and I want to focus mostly on having a true discussion and, and an interactive discussion of clinically-based relevant situations where you and I, on Monday, today is Monday, the next day you're in clinic, 
clinic that you might encounter and how do we approach these specific patients. So let's start specifically with our sphingosine 1-phosphate, the signaling molecule that we are aware of, and this is specifically with the, tonight's conversation. So this is a signaling molecule that we know that is part of our entire process, and I'll talk specifically as far as how this contributes to the immunocascade that ultimately results in inflammatory bowel disease and, and, and how we could potentially target this specifically in being able to improve the level of inflammation that we see. Now, recognizing that, as we all know, lymphocyte trafficking is a common terminology we've been using for quite some time now in a sense of understanding what's contributing to the level of inflammation. What happens is that these lymphocytes go to the area or the site, specifically the colon, let's say, or the small bowel, wherever the inflammation is, and it's this ongoing surge of lymphocytes to the area that ultimately relates to and concludes with worsening inflammation. So recognizing if there's any effort in the sense that we have seen this mechanism before, uh, let's say with vetalizumab as an example, to target the lymphocyte trafficking as an example of how this MOA of mechanism of action has come to be trying to target the amount of lymphocytes that's reaching the colon, the intestinal tract, and contributing to inflammatory bowel disease, to the colitis as an example. So could we potentially higher upstream prevent the surge of lymphocytes. And that's where the signaling molecule comes to be. With the sphingosine 1 receptor signaling molecule, what we're hoping for is that we prevent the egression of lymphocytes from the lymph nodes to the site of inflammation that ultimately results in worsening inflammation. And being able to stop this, this in turn improves the amount of inflammation that potentially could continue on, improves or reduces or, or prohibits potentially the amount of cytokines and proteins that continues to surge and cause this ongoing inflammation we see in our patients. And so when we talk about this S1P receptor modulation, again, what we're doing is we're preventing the lymphocytes to go release from the lymph nodes into the site of inflammation, the gut. Now, this is a busy slide, but this is just to show us that there are five different S1Ps, different receptors. So the S1P1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. 1 to 3, S1P1 to 3, is actually ubiquitously found across different tissues and organs. 4 and 5 are a little bit more selective in the organs that the, these uh, receptors are found. And so you can see that this is such an exciting time that we have in inflammatory bowel disease, both for ulcerative colitis and in the future even for Crohn's disease, where we're able to target a little bit more specifically part of this immunocascade, and we can find the appropriate treatment that can now help modulate the level of inflammation we're seeing in our patients. And specifically with the therapies we have, ozanamod and what's to come, atrazomod, which both the treatments I will discuss here shortly, but again, recognizing that they are targeting specific S1P signaling molecules to in turn be able to prevent the egression of lymphocytes to the site of the inflammation. So Ozanimod specifically is the first and only S1P1 modulator that we now have available, currently available for ulcerative colitis, and previously, as of 2020, was available or is available also for multiple sclerosis. It's a once-daily treatment option. It's a, considered an oral small molecule. And what we know with Ozanimod is 
that uh, this is based off of our clinical trials and results as far as finding the, the true efficacy from this. And this comes from True North, our phase three trial data, and that's what I'm going to share with us here, recognizing, again, this is one of your questions, but as far as what have we learned with Ozanimod, and of course, all of our therapies that have come through the pipeline go through their different phases of clinical trials. And with the True North, we found that Ozanimod compared to placebo was more efficacious. And 37% of patients reached clinical remission at 52 weeks at the end of the trial endpoint. So when we're looking at the different uh, uh, comparators, both for the induction period as well as the maintenance period, when we're looking at the efficacy, how well does Ozanimod work compared to placebo, you're seeing that we are able to achieve a superiority compared to placebo. And also as far as the different cohorts, so we had cohort one and cohort two, basically just for enrollment is, uh, uh, components, the, the two cohorts were created to be able to have enough number of patients enrolled to be able to effectively compare to placebo. But overall, I draw your attention to not just looking at the primary endpoint of the clinical remission, but then also as listed as the secondary endpoints. So compared to placebo, we're overall seeing this gain with, uh, with improvement, with achieving both the clinical remission, endoscopic, et cetera, each of these mucosal healing that's listed out, we're seeing that at week 52, again, our patients want to know how long will this last? So by that week 52 endpoint, the Ozanimod was superior compared to placebo. And then the question comes, well, what about even longer data? And so now we even have longer data as far as these patients who continue to achieve that clinical response and remission continue to do well. And now we have longer uh, studies to be able to describe to us the importance of durability. Our patients want to know how quickly will I feel better? How long will this last? Right? And so now we're being able to have additional data to show that among those patients who achieved either response or remission, they continue to do well, and this is by, per the data by week 98 that was recently presented as well. And then the question comes, well, what about safety? And overall, the incidence of adverse events was higher in the Ozanimod group, but I want to take a pause here and emphasize the overall consideration or, or, or when we are worried about safety of any of our therapies, let's be honest, uncontrolled disease results in the worst adverse outcomes for our patients. So really emphasizing the importance of controlling the disease, controlling the inflammation should always remain your, 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 your goal, right? Being able to understand that if we don't control the inflammation, the, our patients are at a higher risk for infection, hospitalization, need for steroids, malignancy, et cetera. But when we look at overall, certainly compared to placebo up into through the maintenance, we are seeing a higher percentage. But when we look specifically at what kind of adverse events that these are reported, these are not uh, serious uh, primary adverse events. These are adverse events that are reported nasopharyngitis, et cetera. Each of these that uh, are listed out here, we are seeing a slightly higher rate among our patients who are treated with ozanimod as compared to placebo placebo during that maintenance group association. So we're, we have the ulcerative colitis patient who suffers from mild, moderate, severe disease. 
who has previously been on our mesalamines or our five ASAs. We've treated them with oral and topical. So then the question comes, well, when do I start or will this patient respond well if I started or exposed them first to a five ASA and now to ozanamod? So this was a post hoc analysis we conducted to answer just that question because we know before ozanamod we have and continue to have our five ASAs. And as you can look here, that overall, among patients who were previously on topical oral 5-ASAs and now are receiving or on ozanamod, you can certainly see that regardless of these patients being exposed to 5-ASAs or not, these patients continue to achieve an effective response with ozanamod despite previously receiving topical and or oral 5-ASAs. So again, when we're in clinical practice and we're looking at which patients, certainly our patients probably are already on a 5-ASA and maybe they lost a response or didn't respond. So once again, this is answering that question of, well, which patient do I move on to with ozanamod, for example? So this tells us that among patients previously treated, you could go with ozanamod and you are achieving an effective response for your patients. Then the next question comes, well, what about the patients who were previously treated with vetolizumab? Remember, I started my conversation with saying that the lymphocyte trafficking, this mechanism is not new for us, recognizing that if the surge of lymphocytes continues on to the site of inflammation, there's worsening inflammation, there's worsening symptoms, et cetera. So what about the patients who previously kind of went through this with, with lymphocyte tra trafficking targeted with vetolizumab, now previously exposed? suvidolizumab, can we now consider ozanamod as far as another mechanism of action, your S1P, now approach of modulating the, the, uh, the cytokine pathway and potentially reducing inflammation. And so this was another post hoc analysis conducted to evaluate just that. Recognizing, again, before ozanimab, we've had betalizumab, just like the prior side, we've have had our five ASAs. So overall, you can see in this post hoc analysis, among patients who were previously treated with betalizumab, who may have initially had a response or no response, and now are treated with ozanimab, once again, you're seeing that these patients were still able to have an effective response to ozanimab. So the question kind of, and we'll, I look forward to our conversation, of really emphasizing that these patients will continue to potentially have a response despite previously perhaps having this cytokine inflammatory pathway being targeted with, with a mechanism of action that might be potentially very similar, but certainly very different in its own ways as well. Then the question comes, well, is ozanamod safe in the older patient? And, and so this was another post hoc analysis to try to answer and evaluate this question. Because oftentimes when we hear the safety list and then we say, well, maybe this ozanamod is not right for our patients who are older. Maybe perhaps because we're worried about medical comorbidities with older age or the infection risk that we certainly have to account for for the older aged patient. And by older, don't worry, Miguel, I mean greater than 60. And I don't think that's, uh, that's a oh, consideration. This, this could get up. It's the evening. Come on. Uh, so, so what we're seeing is that that's fine as far as if the comparable results. So we're not having those additional concerns as far as new safety signals or worsening safety signals or adverse events because a patient is greater than the age of 60 as compared to younger than the age of 60. Once again, reinforcing and help gu guiding us a little bit based off of these post hoc analyses 
pooling that True North clinical trials data initial uh, study, being able to tease out and answer these uh, questions for us. So in clinic, in practice, when we're sitting there, we're determining what is the right patient for the right treatment. That's what it ultimately comes down to. So as far as being able to look longer term specifically in the older patient, again, as I mentioned, we're worried about the safety risk potentially, medical comorbidities, infection risk. We will talk about the, the cardiac risk potentially, the cataract, macular edema, et cetera. So when you're looking at this, based off of our post hoc analysis, when we divided the patients greater than the age of 60 or younger than the age of 60, again, we're not seeing any new or different safety signals among our older patients. Once again, very reassuring, exactly what I said initially, control the inflammation. This will result in the best outcomes for our patients. And so certainly we do have to have safety considerations. We look at that when we reach into that medicine cabinet, regardless of which therapy, but I don't think we need to be apprehensive about considering ozanamod as a treatment because of age alone. Age is just a number. What's going to continue to be presented here is, uh, in the next few days, and actually tomorrow's Tuesday, so tomorrow, is uh, additional studies and abstracts that we're very eager to present and, and selfish plug. Uh, I've been involved in many of these. And so please uh, attend and uh, review the different abstracts and presentations as far as interim efficacy and safety analysis that we will share continued data for this, as well as among the patients who didn't initially achieve that response by that week 10, what if we give them more ozanamod? Can we continue on with ozanamod? And what will they do? How will they do? And I will say they do well. So, so definitely looking at these different abstracts will help us identify some additional considerations, as well as the, the other ones that's listed out here for the, among even re, reinitiation of ozanamod. What's exciting is that we're certainly not stopping with ulcerative colitis because, again, this mechanism of action is not unique for ulcerative colitis. Lymphocyte trafficking and addressing that egression of lymph uh, lymphocytes from the lymph nodes is, is, is a pathway we could apply for Crohn's disease as well. So more data and studies to come because of our ongoing studies of the use of the Xanamod in Crohn's disease and, and the study design as listed out here, but stay tuned for more to come. What about atrazomod? So my initial slide showed you the five different S1Ps, and so atrazomod is now your S1P1 and 4, and a little bit of 5 specifically, has a shorter half-life compared to ozanamod. But again, very exciting to know that we have more treatment options that falls within this class, or within this mechanism of action. So atrazomod was based off of its own clinical trials to evaluate the efficacy of the this S1P signaling model. Modulator, elevate UC12 and elevate UC52 based off of week 12 and week 52 data as listed out here. These were phase, our phase three trials to evaluate both induction and maintenance of the use of the trazomod in ulcerative colitis. And so you can see at the bottom here, we started with that elevate UC12 to up to 12 week of data and information compared to placebo. And then with the additional co-primary endpoint for elevate 52 being looking at 
not just among the patients who achieve that clinical remission at week 12, but now continuing on to week 52, with key secondary endpoints as listed out. I won't read it all to you, but again, really emphasizing that when we're looking at these endpoints, these are becoming more and more stringent endpoints for us. And this is the exciting part of all of our clinical trials, recognizing we're gone are the days where we just look at clinical symptoms alone, we're looking at endoscopic, we're looking at histology, we're looking at biomarkers, et cetera. So based off of Elevate UC12 phase three trial uh, uh, induction studies, what we found was that 25% of patients reached clinical remission at week 12. And so again, timing matters. And so when we talk about our different therapies for ulcerative colitis, it comes back to the patients. They just wanna know, doc, how soon until I start feeling better? How soon until my symptoms improve, stool frequency, rectal bleeding, urgency, et cetera? And so when we're looking at some of this early clinical remission, symptomatic remission, as well as certainly the secondary endpoints, but this is guiding us again to recognizing that we have oral small molecules, a new mechanism of action, the S1P signaling molecule, that we can consider in the appropriate patient, recognizing that we are seeing this type of clinical remission being achieved uh, among our patients. And then longer term, so that week 12, but then now we're looking at week 52. So how soon will I feel better, but then also how long will this last? And so that brings the additional question that we're certainly seeing that how long will it last among the patients who had uh, moderate uh, ulcerative colitis that based off of your initial endoscopic scoring uh, as listed out here, this is your uh, modified Mayo score, and these patients are who have previously have been exposed or intolerant or didn't respond to prior therapies as listed out here, now we're looking at patients who did not respond, did not improve, and now we're giving them metrazomod, and we're seeing this, these type of numbers. This is very promising because oftentimes before this type of, of remission rates that we're seeing at week 52, at that end of that year, it was if you didn't respond to initial treatment, do we go to, straight to a colectomy as an example? So again, we're seeing that despite previously being exposed to biologics or other therapies, our patients are having a response, which is very promising. Now again, I'm going to say once again, just to be fair and equal, uncontrolled disease regardless is what results in our worsened outcomes out, uh, with these adverse events. But certainly as listed out, and I won't read each of these as far as what resulted in complete treatment discontinuation as compared to an adverse event that was reported in and of itself. So here, whether we're comparing it to placebo or that week 12 or that week 52, again, the adverse events as listed out here are, are uh, I'm not going to read them each to you, but overall for the treatment adverse events that ultimately required a discontinuation of atrazomod was about 7% compared to placebo and more data to come. So Elevate with tomorrow's uh, abstracts and orals that will be presented. Now we're having the maintenance uh, results a little bit more, additional post hoc analyses, looking at these additional endpoints, the composite endpoints, as well as answering the question of the infection risk and rate, uh, knowing the safety signals we need to look. Is there a difference, especially since we are targeting these S1Ps a little bit differently as mentioned? 
All right, so now we'll switch to the last part of the presentation. We know the treat to target approach. We've talked quite a bit about this in Crohn's disease. We also have seen this in ulcerative colitis. And this is, I think, what um, Anita said very nicely, that this is a progressive disease for both Crohn's disease and for ulcerative colitis. You probably have seen this several times before, these stride two guidelines, which are really moving from just symptom control on the left side to now more PROs, which are scores, CRP, calprotectin, I think we're using a lot. In the last two years, I've been using calprotectin in my Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients regularly and routinely. And now we're pushing to colonoscopy, endoscopy for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. We're not quite at the point where we're using histology. So I'll just say up front, even though that's listed on the far right side, histology is not necessarily an endpoint. This is just showing kind of some of the scores and the way we score patients in terms of the Mayo endoscopic score. Uh, we do have this built into some of our electronic endoscopic records now. Uh, this is a pretty easy score, zero to three, as you can see, with three obviously being the most severe in terms of inflammation uh, and zero being essentially normal or close to normal. If you ever are wondering in a patient with ulcerative colitis that you see for the first time in clinic, is this a patient that I would go to an advanced therapy rather than maybe mesalamine alone? I think this is a nice kind of AGA uh, pathway. I was actually involved in this. This is now in 2015. These are some of the factors on the right-hand side that will pretend a more aggressive course of disease. So younger patients, extensive colitis, if they have been on steroids, I would say the number one risk factor to me is deep ulcers. If you do that initial scope and you see deep ulcers, that's likely gonna be a patient that needs advanced therapy. If they've been hospitalized, high CRP and sedimentation rate, the inflammatory markers, CRP and sedimentation rate, are also linked to more aggressive disease, C. diff and CMV. And we've seen this time and time again, patient with ulcerative colitis is doing well, they get C. diff and we cannot recover their colitis again, despite treating C. diff. And that seems to be a different course. All right, so this is the safety pyramid. I will put this up and I will tell you, this is simply an opinion. This is not based on science. This is something that I came up with several years ago and it's interesting how this has taken on a life of its own in terms of what it means. This is solely my opinion. I will tell you, um, Shuba Bhatt, who's a, a pharmacist with me at Cleveland Clinic, we actually have a manuscript that was accepted and I'll give you kind of one update on this that's coming uh, in the next version. So bottom line is that the lowest part steroids are the least safe, I think we all know that. I will mention something. The Thiopurin and TNF, and you can see on the far right side, uh, Anita said this nicely, inadequate treatment is an adverse event. So I still will use for a new, very severe ulcerative colitis outpatient who's not been on therapy, I will still use infliximab and azathioprine as my first line therapy, and I'll use 10 milligram per kilogram infliximab. So even though we say it's the least safe, that may be the most effective. And then you can see up at the top, Vito, Eustachinumab, Brisinkizumab. Interestingly, in the version that we're about to publish, we're moving Azonimod up higher. The S1P, I think, is probably higher in terms of safety from what we have. UPA and TOFI separated. That's a little controversial, but the question is, is selective TOF, uh, JAK inhibitor with upacitinib possibly 
safer than tofacitinib, which gets a little bit of the pan-jack approach. But again, this is just simply my opinion. Oh, one final thing, top right, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but I came up with a term several years ago called colorectomab. Uh, don't forget that sometimes the best biologic which is fully humanized is our colorectal surgeon. Um, and what that means is for severe ulcerative colitis patients, sometimes the right answer is surgery. So we should not lose sight of that fact uh, and they are fully uh, human. Sometimes they can have side effects and adverse events because I work with a lot of colorectal surgeons now. Hopefully none of you are colorectal surgeons, but it's a great human biologic. So just to end, uh, this is kind of the way that we look at ulcerative colitis management. I said this already, let's not forget the patient who's on the doorstep of the hospital or hospitalized, I still will use infliximab with azathioprine. I know Anita and I did a session earlier today and I think we, we both agree. If they failed a TNF inhibitor, I would go to upadacitinib. Uh, just to tell you, atofacitinib would be fine. I'm using more upadacitinib as my second line to TNF. But the outpatient who's not sick, that sick, in the moderate range, then you have some options, including azonimod, vetalizumab, ustekinumab. Um, and again, depending on the age, you could use any of those three over 60, younger than 60, certainly younger than 60, TNF is still reasonable. Um, and then we always have to remember UPA and TOFA come after TNF. Finally, pregnancy, I think you've heard this multiple times, but just to repeat it, all of the monoclonal antibody biologics are safe in pregnancy. We do not stop them in the third trimester. We treat through. We, uh, if the um, postpartum lactation, it's safe. The small molecules at this point, azonimod, upadacitinib, and tofacitinib, we're not using in pregnancy. Maybe in the future, there will be more data, but right now, we're not doing that. So this is a nice slide. I know some of you have been taking pictures. You'll have this at the end. This is kind of a Zonamod in a nutshell when you think about using this. So really the, the main contraindication is severe AV heart block. A Zonamod does not cause cardiac disease, does not cause cardiac abnormalities. However, if you have AV block or you have significant cardiac disease, this is something that we need to be wary of using azonamide, but most of our patients do not have that. Um, baseline clinical assessment, kind of the middle, what baseline tests, CBC with differential. This does lower the lymphocyte count. I think, um, I think it was Ed Loftus in the session I was in yesterday. You expect a lymphopenia. It's not clinically significant, but you will see that drop. It's usually transient. We usually don't need to stop anything. Liver test, uh, we get at baseline. We do want an EKG or at least some rhythm strip to make sure there's not a block. Um, varicella zoster, we check antibodies. And an ophthalmologic evaluation is only necessary if you have a patient with uveitis, known macular edema, or if they have end organ uh, diabetes mellitus. Now, most of those patients are seeing ophthalmology anyway. And then the very final at the bottom, you know this is a titration. There's an expected first dose heart rate decrease, which is usually between one and three beats per minute, which means the patient does not feel that 
but we do titrate the dose because of that just to make sure we don't go up too quickly. And then the maintenance dose is essentially one milligram a day. If you do miss a dose during the first two weeks, reinitiation with the titration uh, is recommended. There are actually data showing that reinitiation is effective. As far as follow-up labs, uh, liver tests, we usually do them every three to six months. Um, if they're doing well, I probably don't even need that, and then a CBC. And then finally, um, sometimes the physician goals don't always align with our patients in terms of outcomes and expectations. The physician goals are in blue, patients are in green. You can kind of read across as far as what the physicians and patients, and this is just where we really need to use shared decision in treating our patients, because things like fatigue and emotional impact of UC, uh, cancer risk might be higher on patients' minds. And then obviously we, we look at a shared decision approach, which is something I think all of us do. And then I'm gonna present the first case to Anita, and then um, we'll have a discussion, but also throughout this, if you have questions in the room and wanna raise your hand, we'll get to them. We'll intersperse questions with the cases. I'm starting to see some questions come online, so feel free to show those as well. So Anita, this is a 21-year-old college student. Uh, stun, symptoms started suddenly at 20 years of age. Uh, initially noticed uh, little blood in the stool, some fatigue, didn't see a doctor. A few months later, had more frequent bowel urgency, abdominal pain, fatigue. Um, also had um, her mom express some concern about weight loss. Uh, and the question was, what's going on? So initial assessment, she saw the PCP, initially said this was irritable bowel, and I think this actually still happens quite a bit, where a patient comes in and said, this is irritable bowel syndrome, changes the diet, follow up with the PCP, tries fiber, um, helps maybe a little bit with the bowel urgency, but now is having more bleeding, pain, and fatigue is not improved. So fecal calprotectin is checked, it's over 268. Just as a reminder, 150, if you need to remember 150 for calprotectin, below that technically represents remission in IBD. Below 50 is normal, below 150, so clearly this is above 150. Colonoscopy is done and has Mayo-1 left-sided disease. So Anita, what's your kind of first approach to this patient uh, with treatment-naive uh, left-sided ulcerative colitis? Yeah, so I think in this patient, uh, fortunately, we have many options, right? And recognizing that this is a new diagnosis, mild disease, a Mayo of one, elevation in the biomarkers of the fecal calprotectin, symptomatic, but he doesn't sound like someone who's knocking on the hospital door. So Miguel alluded to our session this morning, and we really differentiate when we talk about managing and caring for patients with ulcerative colitis. Basically, the way we both uh, approach it is how close are they to either being not knocking on the hospital door or being admitted. And so if in that situation, if it's severe, where they're getting close to hospitalization and or being admitted and being hospitalized, in those patients, that's a complete different cohort. And as, as Miguel uh, described earlier, in those patients, we'll, we're both, in a sense, giving a TNF with com concomitant uh, thiopurine. But this patient is mild disease. So fortunately, in this patient, being able to start either, I would start with five ASAs, oral and topical, and or ozanamod as I discussed with you as far as that, 
Now, if you became much more was having active symptoms, I may even start with the initial induction with steroids. I mean, when we say steroids are bad, yes, steroids are bad long term, but being able to achieve that initial induction of response is what I'm aiming for for him, especially with how bothersome his symptoms may be. Yeah, so it could be this is reasonable to use misalamine first line. Absolutely. And as you said, maybe even budesonide or mm -hmm. if you needed a course of prednisone. So to that end, uh, the gastroenterologist prescribes oral and rectal misalamine. Fecal calprotectin actually drops to 98, so it kind of achieved the level that was wanted. Um, but then she decides um, she's having more symptoms. So with the 5-ASA, her symptoms are improved initially, but now having bowel urgency and bleeding, regained a few pounds. But after about seven to eight months, she starts to have the symptoms come back. The gastroenterologist explains that maybe would benefit from escalating therapy. CRP and uh, sedimentation rate are now done, and her fecal calprotectin is now 955. Mm. To me, that's a huge flag when mm -hmm. it jumps that high. Mm -hmm. So, Anita, when you're thinking about this patient, she's kind of not going to classes. She stopped, uh, she dropped out for the semester to get better. Her mother's obviously concerned. She's still having symptoms. She had been on that 5-ASA therapy. What next? What do you go to at this point? Yeah. So we, we all see this in clinical practice, right? So first you want to make sure that this isn't an infection. C. difficile is an, is an example of something that could also be triggering the worsening symptoms. But this is in a situation where now you're having, through shared decision making, it's going to be important to have a true discussion in a sense of what's next. Whether you want to now consider, as we discussed, an S1P, whether at this situation, given how, how worsened the symptoms have come, are they getting close to knocking on that hospital door, check your albumin, the CRP, some additional metrics and objective data to see how rapid of, of a treatment do you need or do you even need to uh, potentially hospitalize them and give them even a short course of IV steroids. So it kind of depends on what I'm going to see here next. I'm going getting additional objective data. I want a colonoscopy. I want to see, uh, again, the stool studies. But, but now it's appropriate to start thinking in escalation in the appropriate therapy for this patient. Right, so something more advanced. And, and I think to your point, you said this nicely in your slide. Um, first of all, Zonamod, we'll just say that for a second, does not need to go through another biologic. So you can have just five ASA and go right to Zonamod. This is a patient where I would say is definitely in that moderate range, mm -hmm. and it would open the door to Zonamod. I think when a Trazomod comes up, but Zonamod, Vitalizumab, um, would be very reasonable mm -hmm. or one of the advanced therapies. Um, this is a young student, so once a day Zonamod might be preferable, doesn't have any cardiac disease that we can tell. Uh, so I think that that's reasonable. I know we have more cases. I want to get to a few questions and I'll answer some of these, but then um, I'll ask you, Anita, too. Sure. So one of them, and I actually scrolled to the very bottom to see this, and I think this is interesting, is lymphopenia an actual biomarker? Is there a certain level of lymphocytes that can kind of predict response? Maybe the person asking this is remembering back to 6MP days when we actually mm -hmm. thought when the MCV and the uh, uh, white count went down, the patient got better. Uh, so far, we haven't seen that. Mm -hmm. We don't know, uh, and it's not like we drive the lymphocyte count down to a lower level. Uh, so that's something that we haven't done at this point. Uh, when is it safe to start S1P after C. diff or CMV? Um, fortunately, it's something that we haven't seen really a, a higher rate of C. diff or CMV. I have had a couple patients with C. diff. I have used Azanamod 
Um, I'm not necessarily holding a Zonomod. I treat the C. diff, um, but this is something that's not that you need a washout or a time period. Um, Anita, given the short half-life of azonamide and oral administration, um, what happens if the patient missed a dose or misses a couple doses? What are you doing for that patient in terms of, do you need to retitrate? Do you just restart? What are you doing for that patient? Yeah, so, so in that regards, and, and fortunately we have good little cheat sheets of how to remember and what to do if a dose is missed and, and for how many doses are missed. And so if it's just one dose, again, remember, it's a once a day oral tablet, and so if one dose is missed, you don't double down and need to do anything for the, so the next, the, the day after when they remember to take their medication, they should go ahead and do that. Now, if we're missing several doses at that situation, now the need is to say we're doing a re-induction and being able to appropriately get them back to that baseline. Right. And it's, it's actually a retitration, retitration just to, to kind of go from the lower dose to the higher with that dose back pack. I'll answer two more questions mm -hmm. and we'll go to the next case. There have been great advances in UC and Crohn's, but still at meetings like DDW, we're seeing relatively low percentage remission rates, lower than 50%, sometimes in that 30 to 50 range. What are we missing? What should we be doing differently? And I think that's actually a great question. A great I think we're probably on the precipice of looking at combination therapies and possibly looking at combinations to try to get the remission rates to that 60 to 80% range. There are some underway. You're starting to hear about some of these at the meetings. And then ultimately we need what we've talked about for 15 years, which we don't have yet. But that biomarker that is that precision medicine that will then target for that patient based on their immune profile or whatever profile using the best treatment for them. We don't have that yet, so I think combination is probably what we're gonna get into. We realize the insurance uh, can be difficult with that. And then, um, actually, maybe we'll go pediatric experience with S1P. So far, we don't have data. Uh, it's just it hasn't been explored yet in the pediatric group. There's phase threes that are, or phase twos and threes that are being evaluated currently, so more to come. So why don't you go to the next case briefly, and then um, we have a few more minutes. Yeah, let's talk about Mark. So Mark is a 36 years old uh, individual who has been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. He's had moderate disease with elevation in his inflammatory markers with both CRP and fecal calprotectin at that time of the diagnosis. And your most recent assessment for Mark is that the clinical remission and endoscopic healing shows that there's, to evaluate for that, it shows that he continues to have ongoing moderate disease. And so this is based off of not just symptoms, but then endoscopic, the Mayo score of a Mayo score of two, as well as the elevation as listed out there of each of your inflammatory biomarkers, elevation in CRP, ESR, and as well as the fecal calprotectin. Now remember, Mark, who has been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, has previously received other therapies. So already previously on mesalamine, did nothing, azathioprine, not helpful, uh, Adalimumab, some improvement, but then it started having some bothersome headaches that were reported with adalimumab, and then also used to kinemab with only slight improvement. So Miguel, what are your thoughts in this situation where knowing that he's previously been on prior therapies, and what could we potentially consider for, for him knowing that he has ongoing active disease? Yeah, I, I think this is a very different case than the first one right. um, for all the reasons you said. So for me, this is a patient that I choose between two treatments. I'd choose between either infliximab or upadacitinib. 
Infliximab, I do think infliximab, actually you can use after a subcutaneous anti-TNF that has not worked as well, but I don't do the other way around. If they've been on infliximab first, I don't go to a subcutaneous mm -hmm. anti-TNF second. In this case, honestly, this is a patient that I want to get better quickly. Mm -hmm. I'd be worried that the adalimumab didn't do anything. And even though I said we could use infliximab, I'd be worried maybe there's some side effects that they're getting with TNF. I'd actually use upatacitinib in this case, yeah. and that would be my next step treatment. So I'd use a selective JAK inhibitor upatacitinib. Yeah, I would do the same. And, and, and also, certainly, uh, the question comes with clinical trials as well, and, and, and again, Upatacitinib with the data we also have, and in this situation with how symptomatic he is, it would be some, my next treatment option as well. So let's switch gears to Janine. So Janine. And this will be our last case, yeah. and then we'll probably wrap it up. Go ahead. Uh, 47 years old, diagnosed with the mild distal ulcerative colitis in her early 40s, initially present, uh, prescribed the rectal topical therapy for treatment, which did not achieve remission. So she was prescribed a tapering dose of prednisone, and she did well initially. She's been on the rectal 5-ASA for maintenance therapy and continues to have occasional mild flares in the symptoms. And at your clinic visit, as listed out here, uh, Janine reports that there's now ongoing symptoms, bloody stools, mucus seen, abdominal pain, etc. And she now wants to discuss additional therapy because things are not as, as well as she was hoping to be. Uh, otherwise, past medical history, 47 years old and otherwise healthy. So, Miguel, in this situation, what, what are you thinking? Is, is, is this also a situation where you do upatacinib, or would you go to Tofa or Xanamod, or what are you thinking in this situation? Yeah, so I, I think the, the fact and the third bullet point that you discussed, infliximab, adalibumab, Vito, and eustachinumab, and she's really needle-averse. And I, we've had these patients where they just, regardless mm -hmm. of what we do, they will not use an infusion or injection. So you really have three oral options right now, azonamide, tofacitinib, upatacitinib. As probably all of you are thinking, well, she's not been on a TNF. So to get to a JAK inhibitor is gonna be very difficult. She's solidly moderate, so she's clearly not mild. She's solidly, moderately active disease. I actually think this would be a good patient for azonamide. I actually have had patients almost exactly like mm -hmm. this who've done well and I have not gone to another biologic first, and they're still, still doing very yeah. well on once a day is on mine. So what if we were to change the situation and say, maybe? Yeah. Um, so, so what if she has a history of palpitations and PVCs? Would that now not let you consider as animal? So I'd still use it. This, okay. is, this is, I'm glad you pointed this out. This is kind of the real world. It doesn't mean she has heart block, so we mm -hmm. would still get an EKG, um, and we'd want to make sure that everything's okay. And again, for an effort of time, I, don't, I know you didn't read what's in the red box, but she had also seen a cardiologist. So palpitations alone did not prevent the zonamod. Mm -hmm. It's heart block. So if her EKG is normal and a cardiologist has right. seen her, there's no reason I would not uh, prescribe okay. a zonamod. Okay. All right, actually that's a yeah. good time for us to wrap up. Yep. So in conclusion, um, early diagnosis of UC is important. Uh, there are many treatment options. Obviously we went through some of the pros and the cons. Azonamod is the first oral small, mo uh, small molecule against S1P as a modulator. 
Uh, we went through some of the data on azonamide as far as it's efficacious even in people who've not been on biologic and they've only been on five ASAs or steroids. Also, it may be used in patients over the age of 60. I've been asked that question time and time mm -hmm. again. Right. And as Anita said, that's not a contraindication. And that obviously we need to use uh, shared decision approaches. But really, thank you everybody for your attention and enjoy the rest of DDW. Have a good night. Thank you for joining. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FNG 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.